Last week we talked about your spiritual gifts, hoping that uh, you think about it and start to pray about it and get plugged in and figure out what your shape is, how you fit into this. You have to open it to be able to fit in, know what that is. Uh, this week we're talking about your heart. Not just what your heart tells you, but what's worth loving, what's worth struggling for. We're about to read part of Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and at the same time he wrote to his protege, Timothy, and he said this, I have uh, fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What confidence. Will you have that confidence at the end of your life to look back on how you invested yourself and say, I was lined up. What will it take to have that kind of focus and assurance? Well, what we're going to see from this text is that we have to get to know our own heart. Not just what it says, but what's worth loving? What's worth the struggle? What is, in other words, your passion? From the Word of God, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Hear God's Word this morning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God bless us now through your word, not only to our heads to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it and believe it, that through our hands we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a few weeks, maybe Memorial Day, maybe over the summer, some of you all are going to invest yourself gladly in something utterly futile. You're going to get down on your hands and knees in the sand, And you're going to take, you know, all of that training that you had from that pottery class or that drafting class, or you're going to get your credit card, you're going to smooth things out, you're going to drip, 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 and you're going to love it. You're going to pour yourself heart and soul and sweat as your shoulders begin to form the hue of a perfectly grilled steak, (laughs) a sandcastle, right? Just a skip from that big, blue, watery wrecking ball, the Gulf of Mexico. But you're going to love it. On vacation, a diversion, a fleeting diversion is a wonderful thing. But for most of us, 
day to day, what we want to invest ourselves in is something that endures, something worth struggling for, something that endures. How do we do that? What does it look like? How do we, how do we get that kind of focus that at the end of your life, you can look back and say, I fought the good fight. You know, if you go to Arlington National Cemetery, you'll see two places that are the most visited in that, in that whole beautiful park. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and the Eternal Flame. One, an anonymous memorial to those who have fought and died. One, to someone very famous, one of our most famous presidents. Whether you are well-known at the end of your life for what you did, or whether you're anonymous, people want to invest well. They want to invest in something that's worth the struggle. And what we're using this morning is the word passion for that. Now, I don't mean the bandwagon passion. I'm not talking about like the marketing passion. You know, I, I even got, as I was preparing this message, I mean, in the past couple of weeks, I got, a, uh, I got an email that said, uh, feed your passion. And what they were referring to was all the places I could spend my money in this downtown area if I came and visited and went and, and stayed at their hotel. Nor are we talking about the kind of passion that's used in the New Testament that, you know, if you go back to the root word and you see what, what the context is for, for, that, for the word passion, we're not talking about that kind of passion, the, the self-centered, self-indulgent kind of passion. We're talking about passio Christi, which is which is the, the Latin that, that came to rise during the first couple of centuries of the church that represents the first part of this chapter, which is Jesus' passion, Christ's suffering, in other words. That he wanted to invest himself here as a man in something enduring, creatures created for eternity, you. He looked out and he said, broken humanity is still worth the struggle. Still worth the struggle. And so this morning, let's look at how Paul helps us understand how to make sense of what's worth the struggle in your particular life. By, by looking at, at a will that endures, a work that endures, and a wonder, an enduring wonder. A will, a work, and a wonder. Worth the struggle because it endures. First, the will. If you're going to have a passion, you're going to have something that lines up that's worth the struggle, you have to have a will that endures. That is God's will. And it is worth the struggle because it's a battle of wills between your will and God's will. And you feel it all the time. You and I feel it all the time. This battle of wills but it's a worthy fight. To be in that fight is to begin to line up a little bit more with the will of God. Verses uh, 12 through 15, he's talking about fear and trouble. Continue to work out as you have obeyed in my presence what Paul is, these are the, the church that he's planted and the people that he's mentoring. He's saying, as you've done it with me, as I've taught you, so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What's he saying? It's fear and trembling business. I wonder how much of your internal struggle, even over the circumstances that you don't like, the things that you cannot change, the things about you, the things in the world, whatever it is, how much of your own angst 
is simply a working out of a battle of wills. I think of, uh, when I think of this whole idea, I think of Herman Boone, who is the, the coach during integration in Virginia, the Virginia school where when, when the school was integrating black and white, he was the football coach who was taking a, a, a white football team and a black football team and making them just a human football team. And he was having to be the coach in the midst of that. And of course, you know what I'm talking about. This, this true story was depicted in the, in the film, Remember the Titans. I love the scene where Denzel, well, any scene that Denzel in Washington is, is pro- probably a pretty good scene. But I love that scene where they're about to get on the bus. The parents are hanging around in the background. And one of the, one of the boys is smarting off to him. And he says, before we get on this bus, I, I want to ask you a question. He looks at one of the boys and he says, who's your daddy? Remember this? Who's your daddy? Now, don't look over there. Don't look at him. Look at me. Don't look at him. Look at me. Who's your daddy? And you can see it on his face, the struggle, right? The battle of wills. Who's my daddy? <laughs> How do I get out of this, right? Because I'm the boss of me, right? I want to be the boss of me. That's the battle of wills. Philosopher Kierkegaard talks all about this, this battle of wills in his most famous treatise called Fear and Trembling. And it centers on Abraham and Isaac. That scene where, that, that, that episode in, in uh, Abraham's life where he's asked to take his son, his only son, up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to obey the will, the word of his heavenly father. The struggle, the internal struggle. He's showing Abraham who he is. He's showing Abraham who's really in charge and what's good for him to have the order, to have his loves, his desires, his deepest desires reordered by God. But he's showing him and encouraging him. He's beginning to get it. And see, this is what, why Kierkegaard says this in that, that treatise. He says this, he says, Christianity did not come to establish just a list of heroic virtues, but to remove self-centeredness and to establish love. How much, how much of your angst in life, how much of the struggle that you have over your circumstances, over the things that won't change, over, over your misgivings about your own direction, over the things you wish you had accomplished that you haven't, over the things of your past, how much of that angst is simply a battle of wills, and how much peace and assurance would you have if you began to line up with an enduring will? An enduring will that's worth the struggle because it is God's will. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Second, if we're going to understand our passion, if we're going to be able to stand at the end of our life and say, I fought the good fight, I've run the race. I've kept the faith. We have to understand how we're at work, in our roles, whatever we're doing, that we have a a work that is enduring because it's pouring ourselves out 
into the next generation. Not just pouring out to give them the fruit of our labor, but pouring ourselves out, listen to this, in such a way that we see fruit forming in them. And this is Paul's point in verses 14 through 16. Didn't jump out at me right away, but I, you know, after I read a couple of commentaries on this, I was convinced that he's making an allusion, Paul's making an allusion here to the 40 years in the desert. You know, the, the Israelites did not have to wander for 40 years. At Kardesh Barnea, they, they could have gone right into the, uh, the promised land if they had obeyed the will of God first. But they grumbled. Let's go back and let's look at <clears throat> this, these couple of verses again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights in the world. He's looking for the fruit of their life, and he's seeing it. He's comparing them to the generation that wandered in the wilderness, grumbling. Grumbling over the will of God. If you're not convinced that this is an illusion, you just hang on. You, by the end of the sermon, you're going to see there's another reference in here that is just so clear. He is comparing them, or really contrasting them, to that generation that had to wander. Not the one that crossed the Jordan and entered into the promised land, he's saying, you are like that second generation. You're shining in the midst of the wandering in the wilderness. He's affirming their fruit. <clears throat> now, that's why I think the giving tree is a little off. You know that book, The Giving Tree by Silverstein, a children's book where there's a tree that, that gives everything away, right? At first, uh, he's saying to the, to the young boy, so there's a boy and his tree, and they have a special relationship and, um, and every time the boy needs something, he goes to the tree. You know, he wants to build a house, he goes to the tree, right? He wants to have a boat, he goes to the tree. And pretty soon, there's nothing left of the tree but a stump. And the boy is at the end of his life, and he sits down on the stump. And that's kind of the punchline. It seems sort of sweet. Except the whole time, you're seeing the tree give, and the boy take, and take, and take. Now, from the the illustration of the tree's standpoint, that's unconditional love. That's somebody just pouring themselves out. But Paul's saying, I'm going a step further than that. I want to see fruit in your life. I love this definition of love. Love is the accurate assessment and the adequate supply of someone else's need. Let me say that again. Love is the accurate assessment and the adequate supply of someone else's need. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm always just giving somebody something that they want, and then that's the end of it. But what do people really need, right? I mean, if the, if the giving tree, for example, said, if I really assess the situation here, I would see that I'm, I'm just letting someone take and take and take and take and take, and I'm participating in a, a one, a non-reciprocal relationship, and one in which... Somebody is just taking advantage of me, and it's not good for them. It really is very much like a conversation I had recently where a, a, a pastor in town, across town, who has a, a ministry, wonderful ministry, he's, he's, he's supplying um, clothing and other necessities to people who can't really afford them. And um, he was telling me that 
there was some grumbling going on that he didn't seem to have what they wanted. And I said, well, you should, you should start to charge them. And he said, what? I said, no, really. You should charge them at least a dollar or two for whatever people are getting. I mean, when, when somebody just gives me something, right? I, I don't know that I, I'm really, I don't have skin in the game. I, how much do I value that thing? But when I, when I have been given the opportunity to have a little bit of dignity in the exchange, right? And that's when I kind of got his attention. What if you charge them a couple dollars for whatever it is and then let them have some dignity in the midst of this? He said, ah, I see. Now, this hasn't come from me. This has come from Bob Lupton, one of my mentors. From He's been working in the inner city for about 45 years and, and just believes, look, we, we need to love people in such a way that elevates them, Right? Not just meets the need and that's the end of it. Not just pouring out our fruit, but looking to see the fruit develop in the next generation, the people that we're, we're trying to help. R.G. Letourneau, uh, with his own children, had this same kind of attitude. You know, he, he, some of y'all recognize that name. I mean, he, he was one of the guys, one of the industrialists who just earned uh, hand over fist, big, big bucks. And at the end of his life, he didn't just give it all away to his children. I mean, he set them up for... For, for them to be able to do the things that they wanted to do, that they were passionate about, that they felt called to do. But he wasn't just disabling them by pouring out all of his fruit. He wanted to see the fruit in their life, and then he wanted to put the fertilizer and the water on that fruit. And, and, and this is how he put it. He said, I'm not leaving the world to my children. I'm leaving my children to the world. You see, this is what Paul is saying. That if you're, you and I are gonna have a sense of focused passion. If we're gonna invest and struggle, have something worth struggling for, have something, something worth suffering for, even, as Christ did, then we need to look to the next generation. We have to have a work that invests in the next generation, looking to see them shine, looking to see the fruit of their life, not just giving them ours. Because you know, the passion of one generation can become the duty of the next generation and a burden to the third. We have to look to see their fruit. That's a work worth struggling for. And finally this, the wonder. Don't you want an enduring wonder? I mean, just the wonder that you are involved in something that endures just the wonder that you're included in a work that, 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 that God calls the reconciliation of all things to himself. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That God is at work in the world to redeem creation, to renew creation, to set all those sad things back in order that all, as, as uh, Tolkien says that all sad things may come untrue. For you to be a part of a redemptive order is to be part of enduring wonder, right? Verse 17, he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. Let me just read this again. He says, um, even as I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What's going on here? Well, it, in, in the Old Testament, there's a place where there, there is a drink offering, and it's in Deuteronomy. 
There's not a drink offering during the time when they're wandering in the wilderness. Can you figure out why? Because they only drank water, right? They didn't have vineyards. They were wandering, right? They, they didn't develop the property, right? They didn't have vineyards. They didn't have wine. They weren't able to offer a drink offering. See, a drink offering, if you look back in the Old Testament, it talks about how a drink offering is added to the main event. It's something that you pour out because you're just so grateful. It's something that says, look, this is just so amazing. I, I, uh, I'm so grateful for God's provision this past year. We've sacrificed this, you know, it, this, this main event. We've, we've brought this, this bull or ram or whatever they've sacrificed, but, but I'm just over the top with a sense of gratitude and I'm, I'm gonna add a drink off. I'm gonna pour it over the top of it. You know what Paul's saying here? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying to the church at Philippi, you're the main thing now. You're the main thing. It's your sacrifice. You look back to the early part of this chapter and it's talking about Jesus who being in very nature of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took on the nature of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Why? Because he looked down and he said, even this broken world is worth the struggle. And he's saying, now you, now you. I see it in you. You're shining in a crooked and grumbling generation. I see the fruit of your life. Now you're the main thing. And even if this is the last letter I write, even if this is the last bit of breath in my lungs, I will gladly pour myself out in praise and thanksgiving for what God is doing in your life. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you are children of the promise, children of the promised land, children who crossed the Jordan. You've crossed the Jordan. You're in the promised land. You have received that. He's assured of their salvation. And it is his joy and wonder to be a part of something that God has done through him. As George MacDonald, who C.S. Lewis says is his master, George MacDonald opened up C.S. Lewis's uh, whole imagination. Up until that point, he was writing essays, and George MacDonald was the, 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 uh, the, the fiction writer that captured C.S. Lewis's imagination. George MacDonald George, George MacDonald said this, he said, Jesus did not come to, to suffer so that we would not suffer. He came to suffer so that when we do suffer, our suffering would be fruitful like his. Or in shorthand, Jesus didn't come and struggle so that we would not have zero struggle, but so that when we struggle, we could become like him. Now, for you, what specifically is your passion in this last couple minutes? What, how, do you, how do you find that, that, those specifics of something worth the struggle, of, of, of lining up with the will, of having a, a work that points beyond yourself, of being part of the wonder of God's recreative work? Well, three questions, just take-home questions for you. First is this.
Did you have a burden as a child? Just something that, that has stuck in your craw that has never left you. You might just sit down this week and think, when I was growing up, when I was coming of age, what were the things, what were the, what were the senses of justice? What was this sense of, of dream that I had? Justice or dream. What did, what, 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 when I was coming of age or along the way, what burden have I had for this world? Second, what along the way have you tripped over and said, I've got to do something about this? There's just something, I, I've, I've got to take on this demographic. Or, you know, whether it's, whether it's the, the issue of adoption, whether it's the issue of, of people who are in jail. We've got people who are visiting the jail every week here. Uh, whether it's, whether it's uh, the, the teenage years and, and all the, the, the angst and difficulty of that. What have you tripped over? And God is just whispering to you, plug in here. And finally this, how has the experience of grace worked a redemptive turn in your own life that you just need to pour out for the sake of somebody else? It might be risky. It might be vulnerable. But how has God worked in such a way that has turned something bad to the good in your own life? Three questions that can get you plugged in something worth the struggle. Because as, as George Bernard Shaw says, yeah, I know George Bernard Shaw. Some of you know who that is, right? Even a broken clock, people. Even a broken clock. He said this. This is the true joy in life. Being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. And being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world did not devote itself to making you happy. <laughs> a will, a work, and a wonder. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you have indeed included us. When you called us to follow, you called us to respond. Help us, O oh Lord to respond knowing our shape, our spiritual gifts, our heart, our abilities, personality, and experience. Through Christ we pray it. Amen.